This is the Education Gadfly Show. A school-wide approach to discipline where there's, you know, little little awards and demerits or but What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Matthew Steinberg. Matthew, welcome back to the show. Mike, thanks for having me. Matthew is Associate Professor of Education Policy at George Mason University, which is just right outside here in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. It's great to have you with us. Great to be here. Also joining us, looking more tired than ever, new father (laughs) and Fordham's own David Griffith. Hey, thanks, Mike. (laughs) Hey, we've been doing this show a long time. Okay, 15 years, something like that. And so, you know, longtime listeners have heard me go through the new parenting thing. It's brutal. Yeah. And uh, David's full on five weeks in. <laughs> yep. It gets easier. It gets easier. You know, there's this whole theory, Matthew, about how human babies really should be cooking for at least another three months or so. Uh, but our brains got too big. So to, to actually come out the birth canal. So instead we're, you know, the babies are born before they're really oh, ready so for ready for the world. You yeah. haven't heard this before? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. So, you know, which is why sort they of. are so helpless. I mean, you look at these things, you're like, really, you can't do a single thing on your own. You need me for everything. Mike, that's why I'm an uncle and not a parent. All right. Well, good. Yes. Uh, Uncle, that is a great role. (laughs) Uncle is great. Well, hey, everybody. I am super excited to say that we have a special edition of the Education Gadfly today. It is our second ever installment of our Research Deep Dive series. As uh, some listeners may recall, we did this once before a few months ago with Dan Goldhaber, where we kind of stepped back from the day-to-day, week-to-week education reform debate and the research minute that Amber does. And we asked a question about, hey, what do we know about a big topic in education across lots of different studies. In the case with Dan, we went deep on teacher effectiveness on how to recruit and retain effective teachers. Super useful, helpful, got great feedback from listeners. And so here we are, we're going to do it again, this time on the oh-so-important and au-courant topic of school discipline reform. So let's get to it. What we're going to do is Matthew's going to talk us through uh, some of the big studies that have been out there, especially recent studies on this important question. And we're going to chat about them. And, you know, ideally, I'm going to let David say a few things along the way as well. Maybe. Okay, maybe. Just to make you feel good. So here we go. Let's start with some big questions. So Matthew, so first of all, big question number one, what do we know about the academic risks associated with suspension. In other words, uh, certainly there are advocates out there that talk about the, uh, you know, school to prison pipeline, that disciplining kids, uh, we are setting them on a path that is no good. What do we know about that? And just what are the challenges associated with actually generating evidence on the effect of suspensions on students themselves? So Mike, there's been a host of research for years on, for those students who get suspended, what are the consequences for their academic outcome, for high school graduation, for college attendance? And all the evidence points to these negative associations, right? Students who Mm -hmm. receive suspensions are on average have lower academic achievement, are less likely to graduate high school, are more likely to drop out, right? All these adverse outcomes. But the question, of course, is what's the causal effect, right? And so the concern and the issue with estimating causal effects, as you know, is we don't randomly assign suspensions, mm-hmm. right? And so well, maybe we should. Well, <laughs> no, debatable, right, of yeah, course. Right, yes. okay. But given, given that we can't randomly assign suspensions, right? Yeah. We try to, at least from an econometric perspective, generate some variation that we could use to estimate the effect of suspensions. And mm-hmm. so, uh, we, so let's just back up a little bit. I mean, because the, the fundamental problem, as, as some of us have pointed out, is that you would suspect that maybe some uh, attributes that might lead you to get in trouble in school uh, and get suspended Maybe the same attributes that might lead you to not, you know, I don't know, drop out of high school or lead you to commit crimes later on, right? Like if, if you're just got some, that troublemaker gene or, you know, whatever, that 
that's where the association is. It's not, you know, whether you get suspended or not, uh, that's causing these later things. It's the underlying uh, behavior. It's the underlying attributes. It's maybe in some cases, some mental illness. Right. So to what extent are things that we do or don't observe about kids related to both their likelihood of getting suspended and their likelihood of achieving or dropping out of high school. Right. And so... What me and a co-author, Joanna LaCoe, did recently was using Philadelphia public school data was look at within a student, right? So historically, these estimates have been based on comparing students who get suspended within the same school to students that don't get suspended even in the same school. And they see big, maybe quarter of a standard deviation differences in achievement. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, what about those things, as you mentioned, Mike, that we may not observe about kids that don't change over time? Mm -hmm. Ability, motivation, maybe some sort of adverse situations at the home, Mm -hmm. right? That may be related to, again, both their likelihood of suspension and their own outcomes. And what we found is that, yes, receiving a suspension for a student controlling for those things that don't change over time within Mm -hmm. a kid still lead to negative achievement effects. But those effects are about 20% the size of the effect that had been estimated in multiple studies over multiple years, which suggests, to your point, that much of the effect, if you will, or much of the relationship between suspension and student achievement outcomes has to do with these things that we may not observe about kids, right? I mean, so what do you think? When, when people hear this idea of the school-to-prison pipeline or the, the suspensions-to-prison pipeline, should we dismiss that entirely or what? Is it oversimplified? How should we, right? I mean, there's some truth that kids that get suspended, probably especially expelled, it probably is not great for them. The question, of course, right, is what's the counterfactual? In the absence of receiving a suspension, would those students have had interactions with the criminal justice system, for example? Yeah. Right. You know, so I think to some extent, the school to prison pipeline it, in principle is concerned with, well, is exclusionary discipline generating adverse life outcomes for kids? Mm-hmm. But it misses to some extent the key question, which is what would have happened to those kids even if they had not received a suspension? Right. Right. Yeah. I just want to ask sort of try to ground it concretely for our listeners. I don't think you looked at criminal justice in this, right? You're just looking at test scores, basically. Okay, so let's say that a kid gets suspended for two days. What is sort of the upper bound negative impact in terms of days of learning that you would, you know, just can you quantify it for people, right? They lose two days of learning for being out of school. Do they lose 15 days? I mean, what are we talking about here? Right. So what we're talking about is in effect sizes, right? And then we'll try right. to characterize that in things yeah. in, a, in a way that makes sense to, to most people. It's about We're talking about a 0.05 standard deviation effect. So really what we're saying is maybe a week's worth of learning loss over okay. the course of an academic year, right? Okay. So not insignificant, but not nearly as big in magnitude mm-hmm. as the historical estimates of the association between suspension okay. and achievement. Right? Okay. That's from like maybe yeah. a two day or two or three day suspension. You would say on average probably, about a two day suspension. You'd, exactly. you'd lose about a week of learning. Right. And, and okay. then Matthew, I mean, are there any other studies out there that do look at the maybe say criminal justice issues or other longer term outcomes in terms of graduation and like that, <laughs> that you believe that, yeah, that, that come close, you know, that, that deal with some of these selection bias issues well enough to convince you. None that I've seen that convince me, right? Okay. What, what, we, what we looked at in Philadelphia to try to understand, for example, the role of concentrating economic and also academic disadvantage into schools mm-hmm. on local crime, mm-hmm. right? So we used, um, this is with a colleague, John McDonald at Penn's criminology department. Mm-hmm. What we looked at was school closings in Philadelphia. And we said, those schools that were closed in Philadelphia were those schools that served the most economically disadvantaged mm-hmm. kids with the most problem behaviors, right? The most interaction with criminal justice, mm-hmm. right? twice the rate of the typical school in Philadelphia. And when those schools were closed, violent crime went down immediately by 30%. In those neighborhoods. Right yeah. on the block in which those schools right. were located. Right. So to that extent, so, so it's not a direct test of what's the effect of suspensions yeah. on students' outcomes, but it is a, in some sense a test of what's the effect of concentrating behavioral issues mm-hmm. in a school on, to your point, David, 
these sort of criminal justice or these these crime type outcomes. All right. Well, that that's a good segue into our next big question, which is about the research on the impact of misbehaving students on their peers. So in other words, when we think about this whole debate, much of the debate, we talk about, you know, why suspensions or expulsions are bad for the kids that get suspended or expelled. But the flip side of the debate is, well, what about their peers? And if you don't suspend these kids or discipline them and or remove them from the classroom or do something uh, then do their peers suffer if these kids keep acting out or if they're violent or if they're, you know, whatever the case may be. There is some research that gets into this question of what happens to the kids sitting next to the right. misbehaving kids. What do we know about that? And I think just to fix our, our ideas here, right, most kids in the United States in any given academic year never receive a suspension, right? Nationally, the rates are about six or seven yeah. percent. Now, in urban districts like Philadelphia, about 15 percent could be higher in some urban districts, right? But mm-hmm. most kids, the, the overwhelming majority of kids are never suspended. So the question of what's the effect of being sitting next to a misbehaving student, a student maybe subject to suspension, mm-hmm. is an important one. And there's some great work over the last 10 years, really, that Scott Carroll and his colleagues have done looking at the effect of misbehaving peers, the peer effects on non-misbehaving students. And there's mm-hmm. a host of evidence from, from, from Carroll and colleagues that suggests that, in fact, being in a classroom as early as elementary school with students who are misbehaving, right? Mm-hmm. Either because they come from families with high rates of domestic violence mm-hmm. or other proxies for sort of student misbehavior, that has long-term effects on students' outcomes in terms of both earnings as well as college attainment. So so the idea that there is this short-term effect of sitting next to misbehaved students, in fact, is not com- not a complete picture, right? There's these longer-term effects of being in classrooms with more misbehaved students. Right. And the takeaway then is if you don't have some kind of policy to do something with the misbehavior, right? Like, so in other words, we we know from some discipline reforms, some of the work you've done, you know, teachers will tell us, look, what we're being told is basically just to suck it up and to not send the kid to the office and just deal with it. That this could end up having a negative impact on the peers of those misbehaving kids who, because of the patterns we see out there, are themselves more likely to be in high poverty schools, themselves more likely to be poor, kids of color, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's really hard and to talk about Mike, because on, on the one hand, I, I don't think there's any, I mean, this research is, that you're referencing is really convincing, right? There's no question that being in a classroom with a troublemaker, for lack of a better word, is bad for kids. It's sort of a utilitarian's nightmare. The question of what you do about it is much more, is much trickier, right? It does not simply follow that therefore that kid should be suspended. Neither does it follow that you should leave that kid in the classroom and allow them to continue to wreak havoc, essentially. You can see where I'm going with this. I mean, which is what I keep saying, which is there's a third option here where you serve the kid, but not in a regular classroom. And the degree to which this debate seems to polarize people just suggests to me that we've made that really difficult. Well, right. And and there's legal constraints around that. I mean, so if, if the, some of these kids have an IEP, if they're, you know, they're, somebody's got a, a special need that there are many cases they've got a label of emotional disturbed or something like that, then there's a legal argument that they're supposed to be mainstreamed and kept in that classroom to a large degree. And, and I think David's point is also bringing up this sort of false dichotomy of suspend or not suspend. So clearly the evidence, the evidence that we discussed already about suspensions, it's bad for the kids that get suspended. It's certainly bad for kids to be next to kids misbehaving and remain in the classroom, right? So the question, of course, is what do we do? And certainly in the last, I would say, six or seven years, states and districts have really focused on reducing the use of exclusionary discipline, reducing the use of suspensions, and put something in place, right? Mm -hmm. So over the last five years, there's been this push to incorporate practices such as restorative justice practices or positive behavioral interventions and supports, 
alternatives to suspensions. Mm-hmm. Right? All right. Well, let's talk about yep. those now. All right. So, <laughs> well, we're going to get back to some other stuff yes. later. But let, all right. So people say, let's do something else. Now, I thought you were going to go. I think what Dave is talking about is like, let's have in-school suspension or let's have alternative schools for kids who act up. This is different. This is, uh, you know, trying to say, how can we help teachers get better discipline outcomes in their own classroom without kicking the kid out? Right. Right. So let's talk about Prior to the last couple of years, there was really a dearth of evidence on these alternative practices, PBIS, positive behavioral interventions, as well as restorative justice. Most recently, in the last two years, even the RAND Corporation has produced two studies on restorative justice, one in Pittsburgh public schools that shows very positive effects in terms of school climate and school safety and the types of interactions that students have with their teachers, but zero effects on student achievement, right? Mm -hmm. So if in principle, we care about generating improvement Mm -hmm. in student outcomes, these types of interventions did a great job in terms of improving the overall climate of the school, Mm -hmm. but no effects on student outcomes. And I thought there were some negative effects too, maybe, or I'm maybe I'm mixing it up. I remember some mass eating articles some middle, yeah. like middle school boys yeah. actually didn't benefit and had right. some negative achievement some negative outcomes. Achievement, right. Yeah. Okay. But so on the restorative justice side, and again, there's a ho- restorative justice as the literature describes is a host of interventions, a package of interventions mm-hmm. around students who misbehave, you know, recognizing the nature of the misbehavior, students mm-hmm. who are the victims of the misbehavior, sort of working through that with students and, mm-hmm. and, and adults. A little bit right? therapeutic. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Peace circles, right? Mm-hmm. So Rand actually conducted a second study in another district where there were zero effects mm-hmm. on the school climate. And this was a much smaller sample of schools. The fidelity of implementation wasn't as strong. Mm-hmm. So the point being is when people talk about restorative justice or alternatives mm-hmm. to exclusionary discipline, it's not this sort of one thing, yeah. right? All right, but it's certainly certainly early going and, and hardly proven, right? But whereas a PBIS has some more evidence behind it, that's right? right, that's right. And there have been a few over the last ten years, a handful of experimental studies. One conducted in Hawaii and in other studies, which show very positive effects in terms of reducing suspensions, even reducing disproportionality in suspensions mm-hmm. and improving overall school climate. And just so people know this, the PBIS, can you kind of give just a nugget of like, what is that? It's kind of like a, a school-wide approach to discipline where there's, you know, little little awards and demerits or what? I don't know, Mike. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got, I got to get in here. Uh, I, I've been on the website. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I am not hostile to these things. Yeah. I really, I'm look. I thought it, it's, I thought that like, for example, like class dojo has kind of taken the PBIS thing and made it more user-friendly. And there's, you know, ways to kind of have a green for kids who are doing great and yellows for kids who are not doing as well. Or, I, can we talk about outcomes here for a bit? Sure. Cause I think it's really important. I mean, right. you mentioned school climate. That's important, right? Yeah. I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out what is it we're trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. right? Because school climate is one thing. Achievement is another thing. Yeah. Criminal justice involvement is another thing. I mean, no effect on school climate could be fine, right? If it means that, that that's a great result. If, you, if you're actually keeping more disruptive kids mm-hmm. in the class and off the streets, then no effect on school climate to me is a fantastic result. If there's not a negative result on achievement. If there's no, not a negative result on achievement, the other half of it for me is age group. It's just driving me nuts here, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way I, I realize yeah. we're rushing for time, but if you look at these studies over and over again, you see it really doesn't work in, min, in middle school, right? <laughs> like elementary school, sure. Okay, but middle school, high school, I'm not aware of a good study on these alternatives that shows any mm-hmm. any real, you know, that shows that they work at that level. And then kind of a final thought, which is pushing again, I don't know which direction it's pushing, but if suspending kids as an outcome, reducing suspensions as an outcome really bothers me too, because that is kind of, that's the intervention, right? Mm-hmm. Like itself. So, you know, if I wanted to, re- you know, find a way to reduce suspensions, I would simply reduce 
suspensions. Mm. To me, that's not evidence of success either. I mean, that's a good point, David, because that speaks to the nature of these discipline reforms that are focused on reducing suspensions. Right. Right. Yes. In principle, if you, you know, formally prohibit teachers and principals from suspending kids for certain infractions, you could bring down the suspension rate. But what are the consequences? Right. So, for example, um, in Philadelphia, we find that, yes, suspensions did go down marginally when the district changed Mm -hmm. its student code of conduct. But there were adverse consequences in schools. Why? Because when you change the code of conduct, but don't provide supports, Mm -hmm. don't provide alternatives for teachers to address misconduct. You're effectively taking away something that removes potentially misbehavior from this from the classroom and bringing that back in. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a new study out of Harvard that looks at New York City's reform where it focused in 2012 on reducing uh, suspensions. And they actually find positive effects on achievement. But what's notable about New York's experience was compared to Philadelphia, where Philadelphia said you can no longer suspend for these minor infractions like uh-huh. classroom misconduct, right? Yeah. And New York, similarly, New York really pushed these alternative responses to misconduct, where in conversations with school leaders in Philadelphia, there were no supports, no alternatives mm. that were offered to support teachers and, and adults in the building. All right. So so let's talk more about that, those <laughs> academic outcomes. So there are a set of studies that have said, okay, we're going to look at discipline reform. We're going to see these outcomes. I am curious if they can figure out at all by the way, are we talking about the outcomes for the kids who were not suspended or the outcomes for their peers? Because again, at the heart of this debate, in my opinion, is, is the fact that you've got these trade-offs. You've got these competing interests. If you were mostly concerned about maximizing student achievement for the vast majority of kids, especially poor kids in a high poverty school, you might have a very aggressive program of taking any kid who ever misbehaves and send them to some alternative school so that they cannot get in the way of the achievement of the other kids. Um, and of course, some Charter schools are accused of basically doing that, you know, through their no excuses. Or, type yeah, you know, their admissions processes yep. are, are pushing kids out. Now, of course, we're talking about children here, and so it doesn't, you know, this notion of push kids out is a problem. But, but, anyways, what do we know about when these reforms come in? What it does for outcomes and for whom? So, first, let's just sort of understand the scope of the reform. So. As of about three or four years ago, my colleague Joanna Laco and I documented about a quarter of the largest school districts in the country made explicit efforts to reduce the use of exclusionary discipline, introduce policy reforms around changing the student code of conduct to prohibit suspensions for certain misconducts. So I just referenced the Philadelphia and the New York case, mm-hmm. right? So again, in the in the Philadelphia case, what we find is that on average, we see some declines in student outcomes following the reform. And we find these sort of declines in student achievement in those schools that were serving students and had the highest rates of suspension pre-policy reform. Mm -hmm. And actually what we found post-policy, those rates of suspension stayed the same or went up. And some Mm -hmm. of the schools serving the most disadvantaged kids economically and academically, because no, again, Philadelphia provided no real supports Mm -hmm. in the New York case. The argument that these, the authors from Harvard are making is that the effect on students who otherwise would have been suspended Mm -hmm. their achievement is not nearly big enough to explain the total positive change in student achievement, which they argue is a function of the reform, when in fact the reform is not just about removing suspensions in the New York case. It was also about providing uh, supports, whether it was restorative justice practices Mm -hmm. or other types of school-based reform. Just say a little bit more. Were there more bodies? Or training? Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding of New York's reform is that there wasn't necessarily a citywide initiative to replace suspensions, but rather provided supports to schools Mm. to replace suspensions with alternative practices, Mm -hmm. right? But I think the key point here is that when thinking about different reforms in different contexts, whether it's Philadelphia, New York, other cities, other communities, what takes the place of the suspension? And I think that this speaks to, you know, some of the work that you've done here at Fordham where teachers say, look, 
Suspending students is not something we want to do. But if you require us to do intensive training on alternative practices and that crowds out Mm -hmm. instruction time, you shouldn't necessarily expect that to generate improvements in the types of outcomes, David, in terms of achievement Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Right. I mean, which is interesting. I mean, so because sort of the cliche thing to say is, well, it varies depending on how the reform goes and implementation. And so we just have to implement it well. Right. But again, we have to acknowledge that there are trade-offs. If you're giving a lot of training to teachers around restorative justice and school climate, first of all, that's better than not doing that and, and just changing the policy. But there are trade-offs. It means that they're not getting trained on the lay, you know, how to teach reading better and how to better teach math. And so, right. so you've got to play that all out. As you referenced, we have the survey of teachers that we did at Fordham that David was the lead author on. And, you know, what we hear over and over again, overwhelmingly, especially in high poverty schools, is this isn't going very well. I'm feeling like, you know, I'm being told to just suck it up. This is a problem. Yeah, I think for me, understanding this issue, you want to sort of wrestle with it honestly. You have to start by acknowledging that the problem is real. Problem mm-hmm. misbehavior is real, pretty intense in a yeah. lot of places. And if you're not willing to acknowledge that, you're going to have a really hard time understanding where teachers are coming from, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a really hard time landing on a good policy. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do acknowledge that, then it follows that simply mandating or a lowering of suspensions without any supports is akin to an unfunded mandate, mm-hmm. which then mm-hmm. leads to, okay, how much funding would it take to fund this mandate mm-hmm. if you were going to mandate it? And so I guess I guess all I would say is it is actually a really intense problem. And I think what makes this a challenging issue is people want to make progress on it. It's difficult to make a policy change that doesn't feel like a mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet actually funding this mandate, I'm not sure what it means, but the, the dollar figure is extremely high for addressing the socio-emotional needs of America's sort of traumatized and, children. And the question, of course, is, is it the classroom teacher's responsibility? Right. Right. Because, mm-hmm. again, we're thinking about if there are finite hours in the day and finite instructional time, mm-hmm. to what extent do we substitute away from that towards training and for teachers mm-hmm. to implement these types of alternatives? So it's necessarily, to your point, David, a resource strain to yeah. substitute suspensions for some other alternative when, again, we're asking teachers to be the ones that primarily implemented at the school level. All right. Well, last last big question, and it's really what's driving a lot of this discussion, which is the concern about disparities, especially by race. This is what's given, uh, certainly under the Obama administration, it gave the Federal Office for Civil Rights reason to get involved. Uh, and this is what's got a lot of people's attention, understandably so, that we see these huge yeah. disparities, right? What African-American boys, something like three times is yes. likely uh, to be suspended. And so, uh, what is the evidence telling us about whether that is because of discrimination, if it's because of behavior, and how do we figure that out? Is that knowable? I'll speak to the evidence directly in a moment, but I think it's notable, again, from the work that David did around the teacher survey to hear that, or to read, frankly, that teachers in high poverty schools serving predominantly minority students report that, in fact, they believe suspensions could be used as they're used to try to deal with problem behavior, right? So we don't, you didn't see, David, right, necessarily these differences between what teachers were saying in high versus low poverty schools. I guess to the point Mike was getting at, we surveyed teachers of different races, right? Yeah. And regardless of race, teachers in high poverty schools reported significantly greater, more behavior problems, which suggests that there are significantly more behavior problems in high poverty schools. Right. Then there's the question of bias, right? right? Which right. is really tough to answer. I genuinely believe it is. Let's not even use the word bias. Well, what was interesting in the survey was that, that African-American teachers said that they believed that discipline was biased, basically that African-American kids were right. being treated unfairly, and yet they still supported a greater use of suspension. Right. 
suspensions and expulsions right. nonetheless, so, which yeah. was fascinating, but I think telling. But again, maybe this is one of these questions where we understand why we have this debate and it gets can be very, very heated and ideological. And I guess the reason it matters, though, is if you really think that bias is a part of what's happening here, then you want to put resources into training right. around implicit bias. Right. And how do we make sure that, you know, as adults in the system are making decisions that they're, you know, 120% sure that they're not making it on the base of race. Hang on, hang on, no? hang on, hang on. That's why I said we shouldn't use the word bias because it could be many things. It could be a failure to connect. Even if it's the case that let's say that white teachers are slightly more likely to suspend African-American students than black teachers, right? There are many potential reasons for that other than implicit bias. Yeah. There are. They have, uh, they could have been to the school for less time. Um, they may have weaker relationships. They may not understand the culture as well. The kids may not like being told what to do. They may misunderstand. If you take a thicker concept of bias, institutional bias, sure, yes, mm -hmm. it's bias. But I think leaping straight to, oh, we need implicit bias training, right. I'd push back hard against that. Or cultural awareness. I don't know. Okay, Matthew, let, we'll let you yeah, we'll let no. talk. I, I think the question of bias is an important one. I think identifying whether bias is discriminatory or some other differences that are generating differences in outcomes in terms of differences in suspension rates for minority versus non-minority students is a separate question as well, right? But I think the evidence on whether there is discrimination, it's not clear. The best study that I've seen is a recent study, a forthcoming study by Barrett and Andrew McKechn and, and colleagues that looks at Louisiana and basically what they do is they say, okay, let's compare the days of suspension and whether students were suspended by restricting the comparison to either white or non-white students who have a fight mm -hmm. or poor versus non-poor students who are have have a fight. Right. And what they find is that there is marginally more suspension days given to minority students and to poor students in those fights. Mm -hmm. And their argument is that this is evidence of discrimination. The question, of course, is which was not clear to me in the in the results or from the paper is, well, who started the fight? Is there some other information that mm -hmm. we don't have that may be correlated with differences in the consequence for students? Now, of course, we don't want to see students who are engaged in the same misconduct with the same misconduct history, mm -hmm. all else equal, have very different outcomes, mm -hmm. right? But again, I think to fall on the conclusion or to land on the conclusion that this must be discrimination on the behalf of teachers. To me, I don't think it's a result. It's a, it's a resolved issue yet. It does remind us of what we talked about at the very beginning, which was that you've got these big outcomes. Back at the beginning, we talked about big outcomes in terms of adverse life outcomes, you know, school to prison pipeline. In this case, these big disparities. Right. But then when you are able to try to find some way to try to control for things like, you know, getting closer to being able to control for the underlying behavior. Right. There's still some differences, Absolutely. but yes. but they're much, much smaller. That's right. And so maybe it indicates that, again, the first case that, say, suspensions really do some harm for kids, but it's much smaller than some of the advocates say. And to say there is racial bias, but thankfully it is seem to be smaller than if you were just looking at the disparities alone. Right. Right. And, and I think what's so challenging, Mike, is that without being able to quantify these things precisely, people are just never going to agree yeah. um, when, you're, when you're making trade-offs, right? If we don't know how big the impact is on criminal justice involvement. If we don't know exactly how much test scores would fall if you tie teachers' hands and, and keep these kids in the class, then how are you supposed to weigh those two things against each other? It's mm. very hard to get to agreement, I think, when you have a question mark on both sides of the equation. That is a great way to finish, David. That was so well said. We will end I'm there. Very sleep deprived, Mike. Matthew, <laughs> yes, understood. Matthew, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks this is me, a challenge to try to take a big research literature and boil it down. we got to make these things now. <laughs> a few key studies. We do a great job. Again, Matthew, 
Matthew Steinberg is Associate Professor of Education Policy at George Mason University. Thanks so much for coming on the show. That is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.